in every market cycle in any market, there are opportunities. In 2024, where do you think the pockets of opportunity will be? Ah, there it is. That's what you meant to say. Yeah, that's yeah. great. I would actually be a little bit contrarian and say a lot of these offices that are located in top five gateway cities, they're probably getting to a point where that, that cost basis on entry is low enough that you could operate that asset at 70% occupancy and still produce cash flow. Well, we've got we've got our first guest of the year. Yes, and our first returning guest uh, ever. Double whammy. A double whammy. Double whammy. Well, who do we got today? Well, today we've got Lonnie Hendry <gasps> from the Tripwire podcast. Oh my gosh, that's your favorite podcast. It is One my favorite podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I listen to it more than I listen to ours. <laughs> Well, I guess you know what ours is going to contain, <laughs> and you get valuable information from uh, Trep. Can you explain what Trep Wire is and why you listen to it? I met Lonnie in Denver two summers ago, and he spoke to the CCIM instructor cadre there for instructor training, mm-hmm. and one of our colleagues uh, brought him in, and I, I'd never heard of Trep Wire, and so after that, I started to. Um, listen to the Tripwire podcast, which is all about, you know, it's kind of a week in review, like what happened in the CMBS world and the commercial real estate world in that week. And so I remember listening to it for the first time and they used all these words I didn't understand. Like commercial mortgage backed security. (laughs) 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 I didn't know what that one meant, but like, you know, it was over my head Mm. and you know, in the commercial real estate world, I'm not used to not understanding what's going on. Right. You know? And so it was a little bit of, cha- of a challenge at first to just, how long is it going to take me to listen to some of these episodes before I'm really tracking with what they're saying? Mm-hmm. And uh, and that happened fairly quickly, like just the learning curve, because, you know, small town real estate, we don't use a lot of CMBS financing. Um, I kind of knew what they were, but when they start you know, talking about the numbers and how it relates to all kinds of things that are going on. You know, it just took me a minute to kind of learn their vernacular. Oh, yeah, sure. But now it's like... When you say they, they've they got three hosts, is that right? That all specialize in something? There are. And so, well, Lonnie, yeah, tell us a little bit about... Lonnie, welcome back. Yeah, Lonnie. <laughs> I guess, yeah, we should ask you about Trapwire. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think I'm Bo is doing a great job. I mean, like we we do a weekend review podcast comes out every Thursday, so we record it uh, live Thursday. Haley, our producer, does some editing. We release it Thursday evening, and we haven't missed a week since we started in March of 2020. So we're 240 episodes in. Wow, they're all 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, we've had a couple iterations of people on the podcast. Now, in our most current version, it's myself and my colleague Stephen Bushbaum. We're the two co-hosts, and then Haley Keen is our uh, podcast producer. Additionally, we'll run like some guest podcasts on Tuesdays, and so we usually have maybe two guest episodes a month, and we'll try to bring people in that are relevant from the CMBS or CRE markets, and those are more either deep dive or specialty focused based on who the guest is, and so, um, you know, it's been a great time. It's a highlight of our week. We love the interaction. We've really got some loyal listeners and followers, and um, it's really opened up some great opportunities for us to be involved in other events and, and do live podcast recordings and other things. It's been a really, really great time. At the end of their episodes, they, uh, 
they do these shout outs. And so if you interacted with them online or sent them an email or whatever, they'll, they'll give you a shout out. And so I've, uh, I've had a few shout outs in that, episodes. That's a yeah, great I think, idea. I think As a matter of fact, there, if you're watching this right now on YouTube, you, you give us any comment at all, you get a shout out on the next, uh, next episode. Yeah, that we, we, let's okay. just totally draft off Trevoir. Yeah, sure. I'm sure they came up with that idea. <laughs> shout outs. You know, it's interesting though, because uh, people love the shout out, you know, oh, man. and it really does help the engagement because it, it just makes people realize that we're relatable and we really are uh, taking feedback and, and learning from people that are in the marketplace. I mean, we have access to a lot of the data that practitioners use in their day-to-day workflow. And so we, we have a, a specialized niche in the market and I think we're really good at tapping into that, but we're not doing deals. You know, we're not out there buying and selling or underwriting or, or lending money against properties and the people that are, when they reach out to us and kind of share their perspective or deals they're working on, it really just brings our whole podcast full circle. And so we definitely want people to know how much we appreciate them listening and participating because it makes our end product better. And, um, and without them, it would just be a bunch of folks talking about CRE and using words that Bo mentioned that may not be familiar with them. And, uh, so, so it's, it's good. I know what you mean. Cause you, Bo will send me emails he'll get from time to time or nearly on a daily basis, I'd say, <laughs> of, of people writing, you know, just uh, uh, sending appreciation for the podcast. And it's so true. It gives you a, gives you a little extra oomph, oh, to, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. of excitement uh, every time you go in to do it. So what were you going to say? Well, I just thought we'd maybe transition, um, you know, to, to what we want to do on our podcast here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. So we have a commercial real estate podcast, Lonnie, where Bo teaches me everything he knows. You know all that. Let's recap real quick, because last time we had Lonnie on, we talked CMBS loans and the state of the market, and that was nearly a year ago. It was. It was nearly a year ago, and uh, and yeah, if I remember, Lonnie actually offered you a job at the end of the episode. Yeah, he definitely did. Yeah. Which, yeah. Yeah, listen, he's not only did he pass the test at the uh, end of the last podcast, but- he retained that knowledge. He threw out the commercial mortgage-backed security when you used the acronym. Mm-hmm. Like he's that's right. He's starting mm-hmm. us off. He's he's starting us off hot. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah. So I was listening, uh, well, to the Tripwire podcast, the latest episodes, and I kept hearing this term uh, that I haven't really heard before. And so I wanted Lonnie to get you to um, address this term, unpack it a little bit, and then maybe just sort of lead us into our conversation. Because what I'd love to hear from you today, uh, and really for Timmy's benefit and mine and our listeners, is get a feel for what we're looking at in 2024. But this term that I heard was immaculate disinflation. How about that? Wow. Immaculate disinflation. <laughs> Which, when I hear the word immaculate, I think of two things. Catholicism. Yep. Oh, yeah. And and uh, and the Steelers. There's this famous yeah. catch from uh, was it Lynn Swan or uh, I was uh, Franco Harris. Franco Harris, and it was yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Immaculate Reception. That's and right. That, that's exactly what I hear the term. That's that's what comes top of mind. Um, so yeah, when Stephen was using that term and Haley last week, I just kept thinking about the Pittsburgh Steelers, the terrible towels, and everything associated with that. But uh, that's football, by the way, Timmy. Yeah. Football. <laughs> Thank you. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Didn't leave you in the dust. There. Super Bowl's coming up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. Good. Okay. There we go. Cool. So, what is it? Immaculate what? D- immaculate yeah, disinflation. Inflation. And I'm going to let Lonnie 
explain to us? Look, uh, I'm fairly simple. I'm not super complex. So uh, my definition here uh, is not going to be too deep. I mean, the reality is, as you guys know, over the last two years, we've seen a, a pretty strong inflationary environment where inflation rates were high, CPI was high, the Fed had to take you know dramatic action. They raised the federal funds rate 550 basis points over a 15-month period to try to get inflation under control. And generally, um, the consensus was heading into that once the Fed started making significant moves was that we were going to see some hard landing or recession or this you know, negative impact to the broader economy. Okay, let me stop you and, real quick. That's another term I hear a lot. Um, and I think- I Negative impact? No, negative I can explain impact. that. I, I, I got that one. Oh, like there's hard <laughs> landing versus soft landing. But I've never heard anybody really explain like, what's the hard landing actually look like? What's a soft landing actually look like? What are we actually landing? Yeah, all, all <laughs> good. Yeah, good questions. I mean, I think- Hard landing would be what we saw coming out of the great financial crisis in 08. Massive unemployments, no liquidity, deals can't get done, people are losing their homes, foreclosures are rampant, um, everyone's struggling just to get by, there's more months than money type of scenario, right? That's hard landing. That's what nobody wants to see. But that's what everyone was afraid of because the Fed's action was fairly unprecedented. I mean, the the amount of rate hikes, the overall percentage of, of rate increase in the relative short period of time was unparalleled in, in recent history, right? And so soft landing would be they take all these corrective actions. You see inflation come back into what they want in their target range of 2%, but you don't have any of those after effects of recessionary environment, job losses, foreclosures, et cetera. So like the soft landing would literally be taking an airplane coming down where you don't even feel the wheels touch the ground and next thing you know you're stopped and parked at the terminal whereas a hard landing is something where the luggage things open up and bags start flying out and people are screaming and all of that right so this immaculate dis disinflation Makes sense. really is just another way to describe a soft landing where it's you're threading the needle the economic needle between hard landing soft landing and you're effectively like bringing everything in place at a level that's just unprecedented, not expected, very difficult to do, you know, it's some sort of divine intervention or immaculate disinflation where you're getting the results you need, but without of any of the negative consequence. And it appears, at least today, that we're more likely for that type of scenario than we are a hard landing. Now, the caveat to that is the unprecedented moves from the Fed, in my opinion, haven't fully been felt across the economy, right? So we've seen a lot of mortgages on the CRE side that have maturity dates in 23 or that are upcoming in 24 that have gotten extended or modified or they've had some sort of non-traditional maneuvering done with them. Potentially that works and the market just kind of plays itself out, but there's a chance that we start to see, I mean, just this week, unemployment uh, our, our layoffs have spiked. I mean, I think probably 10 or 12 companies, notable companies, have laid off some double-digit percentage of their workforce. Um, UPS announced yesterday 12,000 workers being laid off. Um, if we start seeing that domino, I think the discussion of recession, hard landing, comes right back to the forefront. And that was this week? Yeah, so this week, like there were several. I mean, um, American Airlines announced 1,000 employees. Um, UPS announced a bunch. Um, PayPal announced some more. There was 10 or 12 notable companies that had somewhere between like 8 and 15% of their workforce that they were laying off. And I think 
the risk we have there is just that can become systemic. You know, a lot of companies don't want to be the first mover, but if you see people in your space, you know, laying 10% of their workforce off, it probably gives you a little bit of leeway to start making some of those moves yourself. And if enough companies do that, then consumer, consumer sentiment shifts. And then we kind of, it becomes prophetic at that point. Like people start believing the hype and next thing you know, we're in a recession. When we are, our, our father is, uh, has been on a regional bank board for 30 plus years, maybe even longer. I don't know how long, pretty much my entire life. I never remember him not being on this board. And I remember him talking one time, he was explaining to me like, if they have a bad quarter, if it's already going to be a bad quarter, that kind of gives them the cover to go ahead and realize some more losses. Mm. If it's going to be bad, let's right. just go ahead and and let's let's own it and let's try to get all the bad stuff into this quarter so we can start next quarter clean. Like instead of instead of trying to fight it, you hold its hand and walk with it, kind of thing. Like what we should do with anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. I think I think people like. But no, nobody wants bad news, right? And nobody wants a down economy or down market. But bad news is usually a dish best served warm. Um, and if you know that there's some headwinds, you shouldn't you shouldn't try to hide them or spread them out over a longer period. You should just take the loss and move on. And I think we're we're seeing that play out here, where the ramifications of unprecedented stimulus from the federal government coming out of COVID, crazy inflationary environment. Fed taking dramatic action. Up to this point, everything has still remained fairly strong and stable. But now I think to Bo's point, like if, if you know things are going to go bad and four of your competitors are doing, um, acknowledging that it's bad for them, you might as well jump on that train and say it's bad for you and get that over with. And then hopefully the market stabilizes and everyone emerges better. But um, the, the challenge is just that it's not usually contained. I mean, it, what we've had in 23 was we had a lot of layoffs sizable layoffs, but they were with tech companies. So it was really just the tech sector that was feeling the brunt of the layoffs. It didn't really spread to service industries or other other employers, but it appears in 24, at least, that it's a little more widespread where you're seeing banking institutions, technology companies, service logistics providers, all feeling some form of pain where they're laying people off. I'm sorry to cut you off. Did you finish your thought pretty much? About well, that? yeah, just basically what, what Lonnie was saying is, you know, if if you're FedEx, say, and you see UPS lay off a bunch of folks and you need to make the same call, but you are just trying well, to hold to. out, it's almost like their announcement sure. gives you the cover yeah. to do the same thing. Right, And it's right. not such a blow. Is there is there a common thread between these layoffs that we saw this week? Because it does sound like, you know, you got PayPal, UPS, American Airlines, all very different companies. Is there like a common thread as to why these happened so close together? Does that matter? I think it's, yeah, I don't know necessarily that there's a common thread other than just there's been downward economic pressure on all of those industries um, for some time. And I think it's almost one of those things where we're in the first quarter of this calendar year. It's January. If you're going to make some headlines negative, you would probably want to get them out now so that you can finish the year strong and kind of reset. And I think the interesting thing too, and I'm, I'm not an economist and I haven't studied any of these companies in detail, but I know a lot of them ramped up hiring during COVID. Like when everyone was work from home and the market was booming, they inflated their employment figures and brought a bunch of people on. So some of this could really just be right-sizing their firms um, because they overhired. Um, but, you know, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see 
Retail earnings generally have been pretty strong the last couple of quarters. There's some broader macro geopolitical stuff going on with the Red Sea and shipping containers being taken over and some challenges with that and what's going to happen with cost for shipping could disrupt the supply chain. So some of these might be preemptive, right? That they're seeing some storm clouds brewing and they're just taking proactive. But I would I would suggest it's probably just timing is good for them to make some moves and then recover by the end of this this you know calendar year. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Well, let's do this, if you don't mind, Lonnie. Let's step back a little bit, and you know from where you sit with the data that you have access to, and and how you guys cover the markets. Like, what do you think we're looking at in terms of just broad strokes, twenty twenty four commercial real estate? You know, we we heard the Fed say that they're going to have some rate. Um, decreases this year? Like what's your take on what 2024 is going to look like for commercial real estate in general? Yeah, I think 2024 is set up to be a decent year. I think 23 was really challenging because there was so much uncertainty. Like the one thing I know about commercial real estate is you can operate in high interest rate environments. You love operating in low interest rate environments. The part that's difficult is when buyers, sellers, lenders, borrowers don't know what to underwrite, or they don't know what interest rates are going to be, or they don't have certainty around certain market characteristics, it puts some really challenging times in front of them. And 2023 had all of those ingredients where you had unprecedented rate hikes, economic uncertainty, geopolitical, global challenges, all in one year. Um, And so it was really kind of a a pullback. So we saw a transaction volume in 23 down by 70% compared to 22. Wow. Lending new origination was down very similar. Um, so 2024 sets up to be better than 23. Uh, the Fed, as you mentioned, has come out and said, hey, we think we're going to see the opportunity to potentially lower rates. Um, that creates a psychological stigma that's that's optimistic, that people are more, more optimistic around just the general narrative. It doesn't erase, though, some of the challenges where you have a lot of properties that transacted in 2020, 21, first half of 22 at really, really high prices on really low cap rates. Part of this inflationary challenge that we've seen is expense creep across the spectrum. So regardless of property type, operating expenses are significantly higher today than they were two years ago. So you have these these components where even if the Fed cuts rates, call it 100 basis points or 1%, and your loan's coming up for maturity and you bought a property five years ago, you're still having to refi, even though the rate's lower in 24 than it would be in 23, it's still significantly higher than it was when you took out the loan. So the value diminution hasn't been realized. So I would say my general consensus on 24 is we're going to see more activity, greater sense of optimism than we did in 23. But I think practically, um, you're probably looking at maybe a 20 or 30% uptick in volume and origination and transactions from 23 to 24, which is still going to be, you know, on a relative basis, a down year compared to what we've seen over the last five or six years. And other than office, like we understand offices just hammered. I think that's the technical term for what it's experienced right now. <laughs> it is, yeah. Hammered. hammered. <laughs> <laughs> just, I'm uh, acting out hammered. Okay, because that sounded like a hiccup to me. Yeah, which someone who's hammered often hiccup. Oh, I was I was playing drunk. Yeah, which, with you now. Oh, okay. It just took and, me a minute. Yeah. When I said hammered, I was thinking crushed. Right. 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 Like not. Right. Right. Okay. And my ADHD brain went to drunk, 
And so here's my impression of offices. There it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I was waiting for the half, the half cross side to happen. That's what I was waiting for. Yeah. 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 Yep, the whole, yeah. The whole trick is to look at somebody's ear. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's how, that's how I always play drunk. You look at somebody's ear and just kind of barely sway. And it's like when you hang out with somebody where you look in their eyes and you don't see their soul, you know, it's because they're like looking right at your ear. <laughs> Old acting trick. Okay. We'll save that for my podcast. Okay. <laughs> Done. Anyway. All right. Back to the question. What other, uh, what, what's your take on the, the other asset class, the other property types? How are they looking in 2024? Yeah, I think, I mean, broad brush. Uh, retail really strong outside of regional, super regional malls, which we all know the challenges they have. But if you look at neighborhood, community style, like shopping centers, incredibly strong. We've seen transaction volume on those pick up significantly and sales prices that are, you know, at or above historical norms. So I think we'll continue to see that we've been kind of framing it as a retail renaissance. Um, so I think if you survive COVID, 2024 should be a really great year that that market has been strong. Uh, hotels, interesting, like they're pushing the envelope in terms of all-time high rev par, you know, ADR type of numbers, occupancy numbers. But a lot of that is built on business travel and people still catching up on their leisure travel that they missed out on when they were locked away for a year. What's ADR? Um, at home. Average daily rate. Okay, thank you. And rev par. And then rev par is revenue per available unit. So, um, so those are just some hotel terms. And so a lot of times you'll, you'll measure competitive set or you'll measure um, comparability looking at properties ADR and RevPAR. So that gives you a sense of, is this property comparable to another property that I'm trying to, to do some analysis on? Gotcha. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, so hotels are, are strong and I think they'll be strong in 24. Uh, conferences are back with a vengeance. You know, I think the fear of people doing conferences is gone and some hotels have been really strong. Um, multifamily is an interesting one. I think you know, holistically, multifamily is probably still the most, if not second most desirable asset class, maybe behind industrial. Um, but you are starting to see some distress pockets and some potential like over levered floating rate deals start to have some challenge. But I think it's contained and not it's not an inconsequential number, both in terms of properties and like appraised value and loan balance, but it's it's not enough to bring the entire sector down. And for the most part, Multifamily is going to continue to, to do well. And then industrial data centers, those type of properties, like still flying off the charts. I mean, rent, rent growth that's unprecedented, appetite that seems insatiable. So I would say, generally speaking, outside of office, the market looks pretty good. The challenge will just be that bid-ask spread where someone paid X two years ago. They want to sell now, but they can't get what they paid for it. Are you going to see people, you know, capitulate and and prices come down to where you can transact, or are there going to be this? Is there going to be this continued like gap between what buyers can pay and what sellers are willing to accept? What about, uh, or do you have any questions? No, 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 no. Okay, I just remember, I remember a lot of this from last time we talked, right? So I'm just thinking about where it was the bid ask spread, kind of in the same position here. What's going to look like and. And B, are people going to, I'm just restating what was said now. So, okay. uh, yeah, no, I'm good. <laughs> good. <laughs> All right. Next question. 
how um will you explain to us a little bit how i did have a question mm. it's real quick hotels what what asset class is up is that its own asset class hotels yes yeah, yeah hotels is its own but it's it's then broken down into a couple of of distinct types so you could depending on who you're talking to either limited service full service um, resort style you know you also could throw extended stay in there some of them will use terms like select serve etc but really you have like your courtyard ends your holiday and ends your hampton ends that are kind of like your limited service so what that means is probably 90 percent or so of their total revenue come from just the rooms themselves right people yeah. renting a room for a night they have some ancillary services, maybe a small concession area or something else that drives a smaller, you know, sub 10% percentage of their overall revenue. You have full service hotels where they have banquet space, conference space. They probably have, you know, somewhere between 50 and 75% of their revenue from rooms and the other components are from food and beverage, restaurants, rentals, et cetera. Then you have like resort style hotels that you know, a large portion of their revenue is is outside of the traditional just rooms themselves. Um, and then on the extended stay, obviously, it's a different type of thing where it's not really like an apartment, but it kind of operates like an apartment because people are generally leasing space for a month or a couple of months at a time versus like on a night by night basis. You see those in motels? Yeah. So like the motels, motels might go the other direction where people are renting, you know, like by the maybe hour less or than something. Even yeah. a night. <laughs> you know, that's the other one. Uh, right. Extended stay, you might have like an actual kitchen. Yeah. Okay. Right. And they're like a small yeah. kitchen. Like you can actually use it like an apartment. Yeah. You know, when, sure. When Autumn and I take Maddie on these, you know, softball weekends or whatever, you know, when we stay in these hotels, like oftentimes there's a little fridge. Yeah. It's not like we're going to go to the grocery, stock up, cook meals kind of thing. Some of these extended stay places have that kind of functionality. There's actually like a range in there. You should sure. actually do some limited cooking. There's a at least a small full-size refrigerator and cool. you might actually spend days or months or Gotcha. You know. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Yeah. We can move on from that. I just we never talked about hotels or that ever being an asset class in CRE. So that's new information for me. Yeah. Well yeah. when we talk about the four food groups yeah. Hotels are not one of the four major food groups. Yeah, okay. You know, it's yeah. kind of the, the next one. Sure. It's okay. certainly its own thing. We we did an episode, Lonnie, uh, a couple months ago where I was trying to explain what was going on with interest rates and that kind of thing. But would you share with us how you would explain how commercial real estate rates are tied to the 10-year treasury? Like, what is that relationship mm -hmm. there? It's not a direct correlation. And I think that's something that people have to understand is that if the federal fund rate goes to X or 10-year treasuries are at, are at Y, it doesn't by definition mean that you're going to see cap rates, as an example, go up or down by the same percentage. You know, There is a loose correlation in the sense that as the cost of capital goes up, right, um, and people are looking out you know, on a horizon, whether it be six months, one year, 10 year, et cetera, that cost of capital does get distributed um, to people's purchasing power and transaction velocity and volume, et cetera. So what we've seen is from a, a, a mathematical cap rate calculation perspective, there's a couple ways you can convert this year's income into a valuation. And like one method is just doing a direct 
direct capitalization. So you take a single year's net operating income, you divide it by a cap rate, and that gives you a value, an indication of value. That cap rate can be comprised of a couple of different ways. Like one, you can look at other like type properties that have recently sold, take the sales price, take the NOI at the time of sale, and you can calculate mathematically a cap rate. What did that investor pay for the property for that NOI? Therefore, here's the outgoing cap rate. You have like a buildup method where you can look at the 10-year treasury and you can say, here's what the risk-free rate is, whatever the 10-year is, right? Here are some other components um, that go into building up a cap rate and you can calculate a cap rate that way. Or you can do like a band of investment method where you look at mortgage and debt and you apply um, different triggers. So that's a mortgage is 70%, equity is uh, 30%. You do a band of investment calculation and you come up with a cap rate that way. So the 10-year plays a role in, in how banks look at, you know, what they can lend at, what, what their cost of capital is that gets transferred into what borrowers have to pay. Um, and then if you look at the cap rate scenarios, like it is a component in a certain type of method where that, that risk-free rate is considered. There's just a psychological stigma though. Like right now we've seen it. If the 10-year treasury at this point has, every time it's gone above 4%, and as it's approached 5%, that's very negative correlation to sentiment around CRE. Anything sub-4, we've seen the sentiment be somewhat optimistic, right? And so um, I think it's more just kind of a bellwether than it is truly like mathematically um, impactful for like day-to-day -day operations. Um, now, some people that are more technical maybe have like a, a deeper thesis of why that, that really is impactful. But it seems like in today's environment, anything that's under 4% um, sentiment seems to be like, all right, it's risk on, we're ready to start doing deals. When it starts, you know, going above four into that five range, it's like, all right, there's probably some broader stuff on the horizon. We need to be, uh, we need to be defensive. If you are one of those listeners right now that knows that more, let us know in the comments. It'd be very, very helpful. You mean one of the people that has a deeper thesis? Right, yeah. Like one of the people he was just explaining that's like, you know. It's the first time in my life I've ever said deeper thesis. <laughs> How'd it feel? I heard that. Uh, every time I talk to Lonnie, I, I get new terms yeah. that I can throw out there. So I'm, I'm plugging <laughs> deeper thesis into uh, the brain there to use later on. I'll show you a deeper thesis. <laughs> <laughs> that would be on my Tinder profile if I had one. <laughs> Aye, aye, aye. <laughs> well, what questions do you have? Uh, I mean, I don't have any at this moment. It's like, if you're, I guess my question would be, if you're in commercial real estate, right? Like a lot of our listeners, or you're looking to invest, this just this simple question, is 2024 a good time for me to invest in one of these asset classes? Can I reframe that question? You absolutely can. Okay. I, I completely believe that in every market in every market cycle in any market there are opportunities yeah like there are good opportunities mm -hmm. if i'm right about that then lonnie i would be interested to hear in 2024 where do you think the pockets of opportunity will be ah there it is that's what you meant to say yeah that's yeah. great that's so good and for anybody that doesn't know about market cycles you can uh you can check this out after this video right here so good bo delves into it so well boom Lonnie. So I think, uh, yeah, your, your framing of the question, Bo, is spot on. And I agree. I think 
two things I've been on record and I'll continue to be on record, whether you take one of my classes or you listen to our podcast or you talk to me on the street, real estate by definition is cyclical. Real estate by definition is local and sometimes hyper-local in, in its activity, right? So market participants can make and find deals in any market cycle, any part of the cycle. Um, what transactions are driven by a lot of times is information asymmetry. So one party knows more about the asset or more about the market or more about what's coming online than the other party does. So you can see upside that maybe the broader market doesn't see, understand, know, et cetera. So in this cycle, especially in this cycle, I think in the down cycle, there's actually more of those dislocated type of opportunities where somebody can come in, find opportunities with information that they may have that others don't to make themselves really profitable or set up for profit in the future. So with that end, like I would actually be a little bit contrarian and say a lot of these offices that are located in top five gateway cities they're probably getting to a point where that that cost basis on entry is low enough that you could operate that asset at 70% occupancy and still produce cash flow. And if you can figure out a way to get it back to 90% occupancy, then you can make a whole lot of cash flow. And then at some point when the market comes back, you're going to be set up for a really nice payday. Now, again, it doesn't apply broad brush that like all of distressed office is a great buy. But I think, look, if you look at San Francisco, L.A., Chicago, I'm not betting against those cities 10 years down the road or 20 years down the road. I think those cities are going to be back to being dynamic. I think people eventually come back to the office. So I would say there's going to be some opportunity in select office um, in select locations. Multifamily is another one where you had a lot of speculative investment towards the end of the cycle where people got a little bit out over their skis, they borrowed too much money, they couldn't actually execute on the value add plan that they thought they could. And so there's going to be an opportunity to come in, at, you know, in a fairly sizable number of those deals and potentially buy the asset, you know, for the debt or maybe less than the debt and really generate some upside if you can actually execute on a value add plan. And so, um, you know, I think those are two kind of traditional. I think if you look outside of that, um, there's going to be some opportunity in some of these other asset classes just based on market disruption. So we talked a little bit earlier about retail, you know, having a renaissance. There are still a lot of mom and pop operated strip centers and neighborhood centers that probably have leases that are below market, especially given the run up in, in rental rates. And sourcing those deals, finding those non-institutionally owned assets in good locations are going to provide some real upside for people that can execute. Mm, which you're really good at, Bo. Or that's your experience is or would be that right there. Well, we've done two two group investment deals over the last couple of years that were buying mom and pop owned strip centers with below market leases and, and, and doing exactly what he just said. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's worked really well. I, I want to get back to office though. Yeah. You, you know, you mentioning office, if you can if you can buy it low enough, essentially, you can potentially make it work. And with all the dis disruption's not the right word, but with all the problems with office in the San Francisco's and the Chicago's and LA, it's looking like uh, you can start to buy at those kind of rates. Mm. There's this building in Louisville, Kentucky that used to be, I think we used to call it the Hilliard Lines building. It's the 500W building. And do you know the story about this building, Lonnie? I don't. Okay. I think it's in our data. I think we may have talked about it, but it, it doesn't, like the, the, the nuance doesn't jump to the top of my, my so head. So I'm probably... 70 to 80% correct in the details of the story, but it's a good story. And I think it illustrates his point. 
these guys, whoever owned it, they sold the building. And these Ukrainian guys uh, bought the building. So foreign foreign investment dollars came over. And, and it turned out that the, the folks that bought it had embezzled the money from the Ukrainian National Bank. And and the the federal government here froze all their assets. Oh. And so the guys who sold it bought it back for about 20 cents on the dollar. Oh. And that, that I, I may not have that right, but they bought it back really low. And this was a B-class building in a really tough downtown market, lots of vacancy there. But they bought it back so low that they had the ability to do some pretty incredible renovations. The whole fourth floor now is a pure amenities floor for the tenants. So there's a, a fantastic gym. There's a golf simulator. There's a huge training room where we hold our CI, you know, our, our CCIM courses when we give them in Louisville. We hold them there. Wow. There's a mezzanine. You can go outside and look over downtown. There's a, a conference room and a small meeting room. And, and then there's this, like, just big space that has a bar over on the side and a whole wall of bur- or whiskey lockers, oh. basically. So all the tenants have lockers where they can put their own stash yeah. in there. And it's just a floor to serve the building. It it takes the building up in class. They completely redid the lobby. It looks like a world-class lobby when you walk in. It still looks the same outside, you know. Yeah. But, man, when you walk in that building, you're thinking, whoa. And the reason they were able to reposition the building like that is because they bought it back so cheap. So last week I'm teaching... 102 in Tucson, Arizona. And I've got this girl in class who's from Moldova. You know where Mo- Moldova is? You know where Moldova I didn't know where Moldova is. So she told me she was from Moldova. It's like an Eastern European country. She's got the cool accent. And, and I'm telling her this story in class while we're teaching through the office module. Yeah. And when I, when I say these Ukrainian criminals, I'm looking right at her. Just coincidence, you know, I'm scanning the room teaching, and she goes, why are you looking at me? <laughs> I haven't, I can't remember the last time I was embarrassed. Like, I turned beet red. <laughs> the whole class just melts down. There's like 36 people in there. They just melt down. And I'm thinking, A, I don't think you're Ukrainian. And B, I don't even know where Moldova is. Yeah. But it's two hours away. So, like, they would vacation in Ukraine. And she sure. says she gets mistaken for a Ukrainian all the time. Sure, I guess that. And yeah. This girl was incredibly quick-witted. Mm. I mean, right when I said Ukrainian criminal, I just happened to be looking at her, and I was. And yeah. she was like, why are you looking at me? Yeah. I mean, it was really well done. It was That's great. It was funny. You would have been you would have been proud. It was, yeah. But, no, Eastern Europeans, they're quick. They're quick. And they don't care either. Like in the sense of, they'll just say it. You're right. Right? They she just did say not it. care. Yeah. She threw a couple of zingers out like that throughout the week. She was yeah. a lot of fun to have in class. But anyway, that's kind of an example of like, if you can buy that low, uh, and Lonnie, would you agree? Like, that's kind of what you're talking about. There's going to be those kind of yeah. opportunities. Yeah. So there's, it's, it's, look, none of this is earth shattering in the sense that regardless of where you learn about real estate or, or, or what level, you'll most of the time make your profit on the front end. You buy it right. And you set yourself up for profitability into the future. And in this instance, there are some some nuances to it in the sense that you're going to have to have enough capital not only to buy the asset, but also potentially operate it at that really low occupancy or whatever for a couple of years until you get it fully repositioned. But yes, like if you can buy them right. The other thing I think that's interesting, and I haven't really talked about this 
on our podcast or broadly, but I'm becoming more and more convinced that we're going to start seeing office buildings be branded like hotels are. So we've seen like the hotel lobby amenity package starting to be seen in office buildings. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think there's going to be some real opportunity for some of these people that have name recognition, you know, to experiential type of real estate. If you can start branding your office as some really five-star resort type of office, um, and then you have the amenities that coincide with that reputation, it's going to really draw people back to those spaces. And so we've seen it in the retail space where the the mall operators have really gone to more like an experiential type of experience or re- retail experience. And I think you're going to see something similar in the office space where marketed correctly, um, positioned correctly, if you can get the cost basis where it needs to be, then you rebrand as some really hot, trendy, you know, amenitized type of space where people have that name and recognition. It could go a long way in driving people's desire to come back into those spaces. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what they did with that building. Yeah. Like it's makes total sense. It's now branded the 500W building. Yeah. Which is their address, but like it's, it's cool and it's, uh, it's memorable. The lobby has, uh, has a restaurant and a coffee shop and, uh, it's just vast and spacious and beautiful. Yeah. And there's a lot of seating areas. Almost looks like, um, you know, like a big WeWork co-work. Mm. I mean, there's not desks and stuff, but there's all these seating areas and yeah. stuff. And it does look a lot like a really nice hotel when you walk in. There. Right, right. That would bring people back into, I mean, that's it all makes sense. Why is the letter W such a strong letter? Bonnie? <laughs> uh, I mean, my middle initial is W, so I'm, I'm kind of partial to the W myself. But And my um, first one. Yeah, it's, it yeah. is. It's uh, maybe because... Our the capital is Washington, D.C. You know, maybe there's some tie oh, yeah. to our first president in Washington. Like, maybe there's just some historical context. But, yeah, it, it is interesting how it, it definitely has a, a prominence when displayed or talked about. Yeah. If you're listening to this right now or watching this on YouTube, let us know why you think W is such a strong letter. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, are we doing a pop quiz? Oh, yeah, I was about to suggest. You want a pop quiz? Lonnie, you up? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Baby. All right. So Lonnie, like last time, I'll give you the first shot. We we give uh we give Timmy five questions. We see how well he's been paying attention. I've been seeing um the pages of notes he's been taking. So we'll alternate through five questions and as our guest, you get to go first. What do you got? All right. So, uh, this Timmy, you should know this one because you you kind of uh, drug the question out of me, the answer out of me with your question. Give me a breakdown of the different types of hotels that fall under the hotel segment. I had described maybe a couple of different types of hotels. What what were those? Yes, one was full service hotels. One was partial service or half service or sub service. Yes, limited, limited service or select limited. serve. Yeah, there you go. Limited service, uh, extended stay, resorts. Very good. Was that, yeah, that's good, man. Yeah, bam. <laughs> 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 Nicely done. Nice question. Okay, let's see. When Lonnie was sharing uh, with us uh, about the ten-year treasury and kind of how it impacts sentiments, he actually used the phrase the risk-free rate. Mm-hmm. Just kind of the idea of what the the ten year treasury is. 
there was a, a particular rate he mentioned where if it's above that, mm-hmm. uh, sentiment seems to be negative. Yeah. And if it's below that, it's kind of like... Four to five percent, it's bad. Under four percent, optimistic. I would say that's a correct answer, right? That four yeah, percent, if yeah. it's above four percent, approaching five, there tends to be a... Uh, Bad sentiment. Pull back, wait and see kind of thing. And then, yeah, okay. Uh, (laughs) Hard to stump Timmy. Come on, give me something hard. All right, so. uh, Okay, this one will be difficult, I think. I said when when I was talking about the 10-year treasury and I I devolved a little bit into cap rates, I said there was a certain type of methodology you could use where you take a single year's income and you divide it by a cap rate and that gives you an indication of value. There's a certain type of income approach. And I, I, I listed it by name. Direct capitalization? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Man, there's a lot during that time. I was like, he's speaking so fast, I'm not going to be able to get these down. Um, but that was towards the beginning of that. All right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. And that I'm would gonna... be contrasted with, uh, with the discounted cash flow or yield capitalization, which effectively is the same process, but over a projection period or a hold period. And then you discount those cash flows back to a net present value. That's that's how a lot of people will, if they're acquiring a property, they'll do like a five or 10 year DCF. But a lot of times, if you're just trying to get a feel for what is today's value, you just do a direct cap method. Sweet. Sweet. And you know net present value. Yeah, I know net present <laughs> value. I do. Yeah. You do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I do now. I do now. We're uh we're forty three episodes in now, Lonnie. I think when we oh, talked yeah, to you, we were like four or five. Yeah, yeah. So I think you're like you're probably a candidate for CCIM at this point. I don't even know it. You're holding down on me. I'm <laughs> pretty sure he could pass one hundred two. I'd get the absorption qu- questions right. That's for sure. Yeah, that's great. That's <laughs> great. I'm going to try to get something specific and a little bit harder because you're nailing all of these. What? You know, Lonnie's prediction for 2024, he talked about transactional velocity being up over 2023 by a certain percentage range. It was that 30%? Because it was down 70% last year? (laughs) (laughs) That is correct. (laughs) All right, Lonnie, this is the fifth question, and Timmy's making us look bad, okay? So I want you making to... you look good. You all explained all this really well. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I want you to dig into your bag of tricks and and you know come up with something uh, challenging here because I haven't been able to do it. So um, as much as I'd love to like stump him and come up with a challenging question, I actually am would be more excited to hear him give me his interpretation and, and explanation for immaculate disinflation since that's where we started today okay okay Okay. great great all right so immaculate disinflation (laughs) essentially in this in the simplest terms means soft landing you're not seeing all those uh layoffs and foreclosures or i don't all the all the bad things that we saw out of the the great recession and uh 2008. So what we're seeing now is an immaculate disinflation where not much has been affected so dramatically, you know, kind of like an airplane softly hitting the ground. 
Uh, softly hitting the ground? Yeah, softly landing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, softly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Softly landing. <laughs> then uh, then a hard landing where it, where it hits the ground, right? And on wheels, you're safe. But, you know, the luggage might fall off, fall out of the... Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah, I think you nailed that one too. Okay, so follow up on that. Okay. Follow up on okay. that. Okay. Bonus question. Bonus, bonus round. Okay. We didn't really talk about this, but I'm sure you guys have talked about this or you maybe have heard it. The Fed stopped raising rates because they felt like inflation has reached near their terminal or, or like what they want the inflation number to be. Like, what is that target inflation range from the Fed? Like in points? Yeah, so it, it peaked at about 9%. Um, and then it has steadily come down. But they've been. So it was up steadfast. around like five, 550 basis points. Is that right? What? Yeah, so that was the federal fund rate. That's that's the action the Fed has taken to correct the inflationary environment. Oh. But the inflation rate is reported by like CPI uh, or PCE. Like what what is what is that target inflation number? that the Fed is is trying to achieve. And which it is a percentage. If they see that, it is a percentage. If they get to that number, that will facilitate them lowering that federal funds rate that they've spent the last 18 months raising. But they have a target number in mind that they're trying to get inflation to. Right, right. This is a total guess, because I have no clue. So you stumped me. Good job on the bonus question. But, well, I'm not. I haven't been wrong yet. So my guess would be Four percent, or maybe even half of that. Half yeah. of nine, four point five. Targets two, targets two. Oh, targets two. It's at nine percent. It it, it, it was up. at nine. It got up two. to nine percent. Yeah. Okay. Target is two percent. Okay. Yes. All right. Yeah, I don't think we have talked about that. I don't think we're, we're in those terms at least. Okay. So all the moves yeah. that they've made is to try to create this immaculate disinflation to get inflation down to this targeted 2%, 2% that correct they would say is healthy for a growing economy but not crazy yep yeah okay cool sweet sweet yep. yeah anything nice. else yeah i mean i look Nicely I, uh, this done. is uh yeah, this has been a blast you guys are great and uh you know timmy i think we got to get you licensed if you don't have your license yet man you got to get that license because i think if bo could bring you on his pitches um your uh, your charisma is going to help him win more deals, and your knowledge is solid now. Like you're you're legit, man. It's getting there. It's getting there. Yeah. Thanks, Lonnie. Thank you agree. so much. Yeah. Now, Lonnie, before you go, give us some ways that uh, our listeners can connect with you and Trep. Like I know, you know, of course, we've talked about the Trepwire podcast, which is uh, you know Friday morning listening for me most weeks. Um, but you guys do webinars. You got a newsletter. Tell us a little bit about how how folks can connect with you and Trip. Yeah, so if anyone wants to get with us in the email form, they can just email podcast at trep.com. And if you wanted to, you could request, we just launched a new daily CRE newsletter uh, about a month ago called The Rundown. Oh. And it's super easy read, 10 or 12 minutes a day, but it gives you a lot of insight into leasing sales transaction stories, like actual deals being done. Um, we and we cover the entire U.S. That's and great. We'll have about a, a three or four minute, um, you know, intro that kind of gives some just macro sentiment on you know topics of the day, and then some really good transaction data. So they can definitely request that. We can get them signed up. One thing I, I haven't mentioned uh, yet, but 
you know, I'm an advocate for people that want to know more about real estate or get real time news. And Bo, I know you're a proponent of this too, but if you're not using, you know, X, which was Twitter for your CRE knowledge gain, data dumps, et cetera, et cetera, like you're missing out because it's constant 24 seven news feed practitioners that are, that are practicing all across the U S that have specialty interest in mobile homes, self-storage, car washes, whatever, you name it, they know it. Um, and it's a really great way. So if you wanted to connect with me on there, my handle is just at Lonnie underscore CRE. So L-O-N-N-I-E underscore CRE. Love to connect with you there. Uh, try to put out some content at least every day. So yeah, we'd love to interact. And, the, and I think, you know, as you guys know, there's synergy in this space. And so um, we'll promote the the commercially speaking pod. If you can connect with us on the TREP stuff, like Let's do it. The more we all learn together, the better it is for the industry. Let's do it. All that will be in the show notes if you all want to connect. Just pop on down there. And I can tell you all that, that you know, at this point, you know, we've had Lonnie on the podcast twice. I've met him in person a couple of times. We had him uh, come and do an event here in Kentucky. And so I, I'd consider Lonnie a friend at this point. And he is just as personable as he seems He's very approachable when he says, you know, connect with me on Twitter, reach out. And like, he really means that. And he engages and he's available um, more so than he probably should be, frankly. But <laughs> um, man, I, I really appreciate that about you. And, and uh, it's been a, a great benefit to all of us in, in commercial real estate just to get to know you better. And, and man, thanks for your time and coming back on the podcast. And we really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. We love yeah, it. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on. I love you guys too. I appreciate it. Uh, always available. I mean, like, look, none of us would be where we are if we didn't have people helping us along the way <laughs> and sharing wisdom and stuff that they knew. And so whatever I can do at whatever level to help people, um, it benefits both of us. I'm going to learn from them and they're going to learn from me. And it's a small community. The CRE community, even though it's national or international, it's a small group of folks. We ought to look out for each other. We got to bring the next generation up and Whatever we can do to, to, to help with that, I'm all for it. That's awesome. So are we. Yeah, so are we. Yeah. So are we. Love it. All right. Lonnie, thank you so much. You hit me up at all. Uh, we can talk about uh, like video and stuff. If you, okay, yeah. yeah. Awesome, yeah. man. Sweet. Look forward to it. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks, really Lonnie. It. Bye, Alice. Yes, bye, Alice. Bye, Alice. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, give us some bye. Yeah, that was great. Yay. <laughs>